E2TH. Woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> I think we can get, get a hashtag going there for sure. Take your seats, movie fans. The film is about to start. Welcome to Craft of Services, the show where we look at the bad films of cinematic history, the movies that critics rejected but audiences embraced. I'm your host, Aaron Coker. I'm also the host of the Just Enough Trope podcast and the Enterprising Individuals podcast on this, the Just Enough Trope Network. Find out more at justenoughtrope.com. Joining me on the show today is Alex Bledsoe, writer of the Eddie Lacrosse series, the Memphis Vampire series, the Tales of Tufa series, and the Firefly Witch series, in addition to over 50 short stories. Alex, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Alex, how did you become a movie fan? Was it something that you loved in your childhood? Is it something you developed later? Um, Star Wars. I was 14 when the first Star Wars came out, and <laughs> it changed everything about how I looked at the world. Yeah. So from that point on, I, be, I was a movie fan. I became more conscious of how stories in any media were constructed, and that led directly to me being a writer. For myself, I'm, I'm somebody who didn't really watch a lot of movies until I was um, older. And movies actually were um, verboten in my house. We weren't allowed to go to movies uh, for complicated reasons I won't get into here. But I was somebody who you know watched TV shows, and I was really into Star Trek and that sort of thing. And so I think it's one of those things where if you don't want your kid to do something, just let them do it, you know, okay. and uh, and uh, they'll get sick of it, and then they'll go be a doctor or something like that. But it became this forbidden fruit for me, um, and also due to things like Star Wars and things like that. And so, yeah, I was definitely, I was definitely hooked. H how has being a film fan um, influenced your work? Well, it's, like I said, I... I... I take apart just about any story I encounter. I can't stop myself from doing that anymore. <laughs> and and the nice thing about movies is you can you can absorb a movie in roughly two hours. A book is a much longer commitment and in a way a, a deeper kind of commitment. But you can watch a movie and you can take it apart and you can say, oh, this works, this didn't. And when you know the things that do work, you can use those. And when you know things that don't, you can watch out for those. Do you have a favorite bad movie? Oh, yeah. My favorite bad movie is Exorcist II, <laughs> The Heretic, or oh. as I like to call it, E2TH. Great. Well, uh, that's the film that we're talking about today. <laughs> so uh, you get to talk about your favorite movie. You're lucky. Uh, I am not so lucky because I have to talk about Exorcist to the Heretic. <laughs> uh, the name of this show is Craft of Services. On every episode of this podcast, we look at a film that's generally poorly rated, but usually uh, well-remembered by audiences at large. Or in the case of today's film, a, f <laughs> a front-runner for the worst movie of all time. Uh, I've heard it said in some circles. Um, it's a film that had big shoes to fill, or a big priest collar, maybe. Uh, but, it, but it was ready. It had the star from the first film. Uh, an Oscar-winning actress. I should have paused to emphasize that those are two different people. The star of the first film is not an Oscar-winning actress. Uh, the cast includes several Oscar nominees, including the director, and yet somehow it failed to catch the magic of the original Exorcist, and then some. Um, are you a fan, or have you been a fan of the Exorcist series? Uh, yeah, I, well, I really love the first one, obviously. Yeah. Um, 
The third one, I like, I've liked it more since they've managed to restore the original cut of it. It's, yeah. it's a little ragged to watch because of the sources they use, but the story is much better in that version. Yeah. Then um, I kind of like Dominion. Okay. The one that, that was reshot as Exorcist the Beginning, which is just goofy. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there's, there's a tone that you have to sort of set, uh, I think, especially on exorcist movies where if like the first movie, um, and I was never really a fan of the movies. I'd never really seen the exorcist movies until, until now, until recently. And the first movie is like, it's chilling, but I feel like if you took any one of the elements out, um, the soundtrack or the great performances, uh, you'd just be left with, you know, a doll shooting you know, pea soup on a guy, which, which is inherently um, kind of ridiculous, but maybe that sort of contributes to, to how weird it is. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a fine sort of line. And this movie, uh, E2TH, as I guess we're calling it now, uh, treats that line as like the fault line in a long jump contest. And it just goes way, way beyond. Uh, But according to uh, John Borman, or at least in his mind, that seems to be what he was going for. And we'll definitely talk about that. Uh, as as we talk about this movie on the show. Uh, before we get started, uh, I just want to say that this podcast is not in the pocket of Big Tomato. Uh, we use Rotten Tomatoes as a metric in this case, uh, but we are not beholden to them or, or we don't endorse them. On the subject of Rotten Tomatoes, what do you think about sites like Rotten Tomatoes and review aggregation sites? Um, they have their uses. Um, if you're looking to see just what the critical consensus is on something, it's a good guideline but i i have better luck finding like um critics that i tend to agree with i tend to use those more than i do rotten tomatoes yeah i that's i use that uh that as well i i do think that one way in which they kind of shine is that if you live in a media market um that doesn't have um a regular reviewer um i suppose if you live like a, like a really small town maybe you don't have like a guy that reviews movies for the paper or something or maybe uh, you, you get that situation where the guy that re- uh, reviews movies for the paper is an idiot and <laughs> so you disagree with all of his uh with his opinions it, you know in this case you can look at rotten tomatoes and see what uh, somebody else thinks but you know with the internet um you know, I, I usually tend to follow what you do uh, or what you espouse, which is just find somebody you know, find somebody um, who you kind of agree with, has similar tastes to you, and kind of get your opinions that way. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, to be fair, a reverse barometer is still a barometer. So you can <laughs> – Exactly. You know, you always disagree with, you can use that as a guide as well. Take that barometer, turn it upside down. Uh, were you surprised at the rating um, that this got? This actually got a 20% on Rotten Tomatoes. On the one hand, no. <laughs> you know, I'm aware of its reputation. I'm aware of the many criticisms against it, and, and many of those criticisms are valid. Yeah. I like it a lot better. I, I can overlook the, the deficits because of the things that I think it does well. But I can understand that you know the average reviewer, the average viewer – wouldn't want to put that much effort into it. Yeah, just thinking, well, this is no good, uh, move right on. But I think if you do move on, you miss a lot of the details of this film, um, especially the story behind its construction and um, its release. And it's it's a fascinating story. And I should probably just shut up and we should probably just get to it. Uh, <laughs> 
But uh, as far as like my opinion of the rating, that's probably accurate. I think a case could be made for 0% because I think 0% looks better than 20%. You know what I mean? Like if if you're going to be known as a notorious flop and a failure, like go all the way. Yeah. Um, so I, it's not that I think that it's so horribly terrible that it should be zero percent and should be you know salted. The earth should be salted and <laughs> should just be wiped out. But that would definitely you know really attract people. I think it's not zero because it's just been kind of forgotten. Like it, people think, oh yeah, Exodus two, that's really bad. But they forget all the details of the film, which we'll get into. Um, speaking of the details, it is of course. Exorcist 2, The Heretic, uh, or E2TH. It's funny because sequel naming uh, is always weird. You know, people sometimes just call it, you know, there's like Jaws 2, or when you get past 3, um, they tend to leave the number out of the title because I yeah, guess they, nobody they wants. Subtitles. Yeah, there. nobody wants to see, um, I don't know, Jason 8 or whatever. <laughs> it was made in 1977. It has a 20% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's a 3.7 out of 10 on IMDb. Uh, it does not have a Metacritic rating. So in this case, I'll substitute the Google users rating, which is 59%. And it was. Uh, Google rating is is over half? That's right, yeah. Wow. Okay. The people do speak. Yeah, yeah the people don't uh, seem to completely hate it. Yeah. Uh, it was directed by John Borman. And, of course, it was based on characters and the story from the original Exorcist film. Uh, can you give us a somewhat brief plot summary of Exorcist uh, Two: Heretic? Sure. Um, it takes place four years after the first film. So Reagan McNeil, the w- girl who was possessed in the first movie, she's now 16. She's living in New York City. Her mother, because they couldn't get the actress to come back, is no longer <laughs> part of the picture. Right. And she's being treated by a psychiatrist who is almost a dead ringer for her mother. (laughs) And the psychiatrist believes that science can find out whatever was going on with Reagan. But there's a priest who's sent by the Vatican who believes that the demon is still there inside her. And they use a device called a synchronizer to get into mutual hypnotism and allow the outsiders to go into Reagan's memories and that kind of pokes the bear where it comes to the demon Pazuzu who starts to manifest and it's a, it gets a little, a little loopy. I love the fact that there is a mutual hypnotism in this film. It was designed as a cash grab essentially for a sequel to a movie that made a ton of money. This movie had a relatively high budget of around 14 million uh, which at the time was one of uh, Warner Brothers' um, highest-budgeted movies. Uh, yeah. It made $30 million, so not a total failure, but not a success, really. This was 1977. Um, it was post-Jaws, post-Godfather 2. So the idea of a blockbuster uh, and the idea of a commercial sequel were becoming the norm in Hollywood, or at least where yeah. that idea was growing. And so it would seem like it was a no-brainer to make a sequel to The Exorcist, which made $400 million off of you know just a handful, uh, just a few million dollars budget. Um, however, Friedkin, the director from the first movie, not interested, not interested in coming back. Uh, William Peter Blatty, who wrote the book, uh, was not interested in coming back either. And so uh, Richard Lederer, who was a uh, producer at Warner Brothers, produced the film, and he got John Borman to direct the film. And anybody who is a bad movie, quote unquote, bad movie fan should know the name John Borman. I'm I'm sure they do. Uh, Of course, he had a smash in 1972 uh, with Deliverance. 
And his next movie after that was Zardoz, yes. which I can't believe we have t- haven't talked about on the show yet, but we will one day. And Zard- Zard- the, the Borman that made Zardoz is the Borman that made this movie. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, that's the Borman that showed up to the set of this film. And it's fascinating to me because he's – oh, boy – I kind of want to just derail this and just do a John Borman show, but we should probably <laughs> stay on track. But as far as uh, John Borman goes, he's so like eclectic in the things that he's done. Yeah, um, yeah, from Deliverance uh, to to Zardoz, um, Excalibur. Ex- yeah, exactly, Excalibur, um, Beyond Rangoon. Um, it just seems like, or Point Blank. Like it just seems yeah. like he's always kind of doing something different. And I think part of that, and I haven't looked into great detail, but I think part of that is probably his creativity and his desire to do a lot. But a lot of that might just be, we need somebody who's somebody that can <laughs> bring it in, you know, relatively on time. Uh, and so he's also, he's both an auteur, clearly Zardoz, but he's also like a workman, I think. I think he's somebody who can come in and kind of get the job done. Well, I think he, he gets, he takes assignments that are in sympathy with his interests. Yeah. I don't think if he if he had not found you know a way into Exorcist two, I don't think he would have he would have done it. I mean, he obviously brought you know huge concepts to this cash grab of a movie that really you know just just needed more spinning heads and pea soup to be successful. Right. It's, it's amazing to me that they didn't try to. You know, sequel always tries to top the original, so this time there should have been two heads spinning pea soup, or like, or a, f- a fire hose blast of, of pea soup. Yeah, uh, yeah, but we don't really get that. We get locusts. <laughs> yeah, we do get locusts, which is definitely um, a swerve uh, in the opposite direction. Um, it's funny, um, you know, we mentioned it being a cash grab, and it completely is. And I don't know the life and career of Richard Letterer, but he does definitely seem like a a slick uh, Hollywood producer type to me. Because it's like, yeah, we get the deliverance guy. And then, oh, script, script, we don't need a script. Let's get <laughs> let's get playwright, playwright William Goodhart to do it. Uh, who? Exactly. Um, yeah, he's the real interesting guy in this because you can find virtually nothing about him. Yeah. And he... You know, not even not even a real indication of how he got involved in this. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, theoretically, any playwright, you know, worth his salt would uh, probably jump at the chance to you know, get his ideas out there and make a movie, make a little money. But he had not really done um, a lot before this. I think he no. wrote a movie called Generation, which I just know because I saw it on the internet. I don't know that movie at all. No, it, and and it was based on a, a play that he wrote, which yeah. was the first thing he ever wrote and became very successful on Broadway. Yeah. So he was, you know, he was he was a name right out of the gate. And Generation was, you know, set in the 60s. It was about hippies and straight people trying oh, okay, to get along. Okay. Sure. And, you know, it was very much of its time. And nothing about that screams exorcist no not at all so i would i would love to find out more about that about how they found this guy and why he said sure yeah it's it's uh funny or maybe depressing as well that i'm as i'm sure you know hollywood seems to be this balance between between the william goodharts the creatives of the world and the richard letterers uh the producers who are looking out for the um the bottom line and the sort of financial side and we have this theory as as artists and creative people that if we're just given the wheel, you know, we'll we'll take it somewhere great. 
And there's a that's not always true. I think that there is a no. <laughs> a hand a hand that needs to be on the wheel to guide there, it to guide it to something that um, enough people would want to see to justify the expense of something. It's one thing to just sit in your study and, and you know write a great book, but if you're going to get 500 people on there and you have to have guys who heat the pea soup up, you know, for for when it's going to be shot in somebody's face, uh, you know, you need somebody to think about those things. Well, there's a there's a saying that um, the director Nicholas Meyer uses, which is mm. that art thrives on restriction. Okay, and he he. It, he was using it, I heard it in the context of describing how when he was making The Wrath of Khan, you know, it was it was also a low-budget cash-grab sequel. Right. But he found ways to work within that to make it something really special. Yeah. I think, I think in a way, Borman was trying that, too. I mean, because, again, this is not a film of small ideas. This is not a rehash of the previous film at all. Right. You know, it's it's saying that it's talking about human evolution and spiritual warfare and, you know, the manifestation of evil in this world as a locust. And, you know, those are big ideas. Those aren't just, you know, that's it's not Friday the 13th part two. Right. This this is a whole new, whole different direction. And I really admire that. I got I got to say, I. I love sequels that do that, that that go completely away from their original films, like Highlander 2. Oh, man. Whatever you may say about it, it could care less about that first movie, even though all the same people were involved in it. There's no effort at continuity. There's no, you know, you know we've got to bring Sean Connery back, so it doesn't really matter how. And so they don't put any thought into it. Right, exactly. And I you know, I admire that kind of thing. And with this movie, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to we're gonna do first we're gonna do the thing that you should never really do, which is explain why the events of the first movie happened. Why the demon chose this particular twelve year old non religious girl. Uh huh. And then we're gonna from that we're going to imply that there's you know the next step in human evolution is this joining of minds that can take place either through the little synchronizer machine or you know through the power of people like reagan right and that's cool i I can go with that (laughs) it's in the execution that (laughs) yeah of sour and there's so many things that go wrong in the execution yeah but I'll, I'll say this about the the acting, and we can go into this in, in excruciating detail. <laughs> the acting is awful, but because it's so across the board awful, because there's nobody in it who gives a good performance, it draws your attention to everything else. Right. It 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 you know you're you're not distracted by acting. Right. <laughs> you can you can ponder the concepts. You can take in the visuals. You can listen to Ennio Morricone's score, which I, that's the part that wholeheartedly I can get behind. I love that music. Sure. And because it's put together like that, it's it's an experience of watching a movie that you don't get very often, where you are are so uninvolved that you kind of loop back around and become involved again. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, You get kind of synchronized, if you will, with the film. Oh, there you go. There you go. Yeah. Um, 
Boy, the synchronizer. It's such a neat <laughs> idea, uh, and it's been used to good effect in other films. Like, well, just, you know, Inception off the top of my head, like people yeah. sort of linking up their minds or whatever. But if you, if you, you've, well, they had a lot of, I guess the budget was relatively high on this film. If you're not willing to spend a lot of money on the effect, though, then you really got to come up with something better than just a half in the bag uh, classic actor sort of just staring <laughs> into the camera uh, where nothing else is going on. Um, so, uh, yeah, so they brought this guy, Goodhart, in to do the script, and Borman didn't really like it, um, and he asked him to do a rewrite incorporating ideas from his longtime creative assistant, Rospo Pallenberg. And I yep. feel like Rospo Pallenberg is the most interesting figure in this whole thing. <laughs> He's a guy who is credited as creative assistant, whatever that means, on a lot of Borman's films. And I was kind of looking through Borman's um, career uh, before we um, got recording today, and he's like – he's he's rewritten scripts in the past. Right. In fact, um, on Deliverance, he got into a fistfight uh, with the guy that wrote the book and the screenplay over some of the changes that he made. And uh, Mr. Pallenberg, who I imagine is having a lot of rings, probably. <laughs> With um, yeah, shirts unbuttoned halfway down his chest. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Or like an ascot or something like that. <laughs> uh, but he's uh, you know involved in this as well. So when uh, Goodhart took a powder, basically, because you know he's a playwright, he has integrity in his work, uh, we let Pallenberg in the door. And they, uh, he and Borman completely rewrote the script. Um, to suit their ideas, which, as you brought up, are big ideas. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I think that you can look at that is exciting about this film. Uh, Borman had planned to film the movie on location in all the locations. And if you know this movie, you know that it, uh, like on on the back of a locust, it flies all (laughs) over the world in a lot of different locations. Um, But none of that. They couldn't do any of that. So it was almost all shot on sets. Uh, In fact, they were even refused permission to shoot um, on the uh, steps, the exorcist steps in Georgetown. Yeah. Uh, which is crazy to me because, like, it's just like the world is saying, don't make this movie. <laughs> you can't You can't even use the famous steps, which yeah. are in every single, like, uh, they're probably worked into the TV show adaptation that's happening right now. Like, that's... Well, they're, you know, they're probably thinking, you know, we, yeah, you can refuse us the steps, but we want people to start dying like they did in the first movie. Then we'll pay attention to you. Yeah, <laughs> maybe Georgetown is like, um, maybe we don't want people to associate our steps with murder and death <laughs> and demons. Uh, there are there are these exterior shots uh, in Africa that look like remember the old uh, land of dairy queen commercials from the eighties? <laughs> That's what they look like to me. They're just they're just brown styrofoam, and they just uh, it doesn't work. It doesn't really work at all. Um, well, there's- there, there was an attempt. In an attempt this, was made <laughs> to 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 desaturate the colors to make yes. it more monochrome, and you know the color was very carefully controlled Definitely. so that you know you would whatever you may say about it. This was on purpose. This was the look they wanted. Yeah, and I think a lot of it, you know, a lot of it's just because that's how you did things then. But a lot of it is also an attempt to make things look a little weird, a little different. Sure. And they and they do. They also in kind of look cheap and like big teeth out in the desert. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just think that like when you are uh, limited – and again, I keep saying limited. I mean they had a lot of money, but maybe it wasn't going to the right places. But if you are um, under constraint, um, like Nicholas Meyer who – 
We can't start talking about Wrath of Khan. I'd talk about it for the entire show. But uh, he wrote the script in like a weekend, basically. Yeah. Uh, and came up with the script that he did. But anyway, not different film. Um, you you, t- you, you want to go in a direction – uh, in a, in a, in a, uni- a unique direction, like I mentioned, the land of Dairy Queen. Take it farther. Uh, have it be a thing where we're seeing Africa, but for some reason it's miniature or tiny or strange. You know, don't yeah. don't try to like recreate it one for one. You know, let your creative impulses take you somewhere. And this film just seems to be this kind of creative impulses gone wrong. Not bad, as you said before, but for some reason they just don't. Maybe the people involved didn't have um, the skill to bring forth what they were um, trying to show. I would argue that Zardoz, which not very highly rated, I think like a 45% on Rotten Tomatoes, I love Zardoz and I love it because it's weird. But I also think that he really did accomplish something and that people weren't ready for, man. You know what I mean? I think there are a lot of big ideas in it. And he took a budget that I'm fairly certain was very small and just did a lot of really neat stuff. Okay, they eat green bread. Why is the bread green? Because <laughs> the the uh, craft services people had uh, green dye and it's like, ooh, it's weird bread. It's green. But they're making choices that are unique um, in lieu of having giant spaceships or yeah, great true. effects. The unique thing is uh, Sean Connery's costume. <laughs> well, of course. That's what everybody remembers. Uh, Burt Reynolds was actually supposed to be in that film. Um, because... That might have been even sweeter. Yeah, yeah. But again, what, it, clearly, unconsciously, I'm trying to get away from E2TH here. <laughs> uh, we should probably get back to it. Uh, yeah, let's talk about the cast. Uh, of course, Richard Burton is in this film. He stars right. as Philip Lamont. And- and Burton, you know, this Burton was still doing good work then. So oh, yeah. his his whole approach to this part is is odd and kind of disheartening because he doesn't do anything. And if you if you read Borman's autobiography, it wasn't because Burton was hard to get along with. Anything that he was told to do, he did, but he brought nothing of his own. Yeah. They said, you know, stand here. He'd stand there. Say that line, that line more, you know, emphatically. He would say it more emphatically. But there was nothing, no level of engagement there. And I, I know that they originally wanted the priest to be a younger man so that there could be some sexual tension between him and Reagan, which is, a, is another issue. But when they try to drop that into the climax where you have sexy, evil Reagan coming <laughs> on to, you know, basically, you know, nearly 60-year-old Richard right. Burton, it, it not only doesn't work, it, it doesn't work so, doesn't work so well, it so well doesn't work that you just, you know, your jaw just drops. And this is a movie full of a lot of jaw-dropping things. Oh, yeah. But that's, you know, that's a big problem. Yeah. Sexy Evil Reagan is the name of my 80s cover band. I think that uh, it's too bad. He's so he's so talented. And, yeah, like you said, he was game. I just think that he's, and I don't mean to cast aspersions on the work of Mr. Pallenberg, but he's just given nothing to do, really, in the script. Um, there's yeah. this There's this long sequence at the end where he is... It's never really clear. Like he's maybe under the influence of Pazuzu, but he's definitely in this sort of fugue. And he, we go twenty minutes go by, and his character doesn't even say anything. Yeah, yeah, just rides trains and planes. Rides trains. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and also, like during the synchronizer scenes, he's just you know totally blank. 
I guess I don't know what you would do. And if you're an actor who's being told, all right, you're in a mutual hypnosis and you're seeing a two girls' hands fight over a Play-Doh heart, like how do you how do you add something to that with improv? Um, I, I and I can see that. I yeah. See. But again, if anyone could, you would think Richard Burton could do it. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't envy um, his his task. Um, he was pro- I think he was probably getting re-divorced to Elizabeth Taylor at this time. So that couldn't have been easy. And as far as like his, you know, renowned sort of partying nature, um, I heard or read somewhere that like he started the movie sober. And as the film went on, he ended up getting like drunker and drunker because (laughs) probably just from having to work on the film. Uh, Linda Blair is back again as Reagan McNeil. And I don't know what else to say about that. Um, You know, she went from somebody who was so natural and so you know, innocent, uh, in the first film, um, along with, uh, Alan Burstyn and did not really evolve like a lot of child stars did not really evolve into a great adult performer. Yeah. I, I think, you know, I think in the exorcist, her performance is, is, can be mostly credited to William Friedkin yeah. for working with her and getting this stuff out of her. And of course, a lot of her performance is, is created after the fact, you know, she has a different voice right. as the demon, you know, there's special effects, makeup and all that, you know, helps. And, and she's, she doesn't have that in this movie. She has to rely on her native charm <laughs> and, and her tap dancing skills and her tap dancing skills. And there's, you know, for whatever reason there, it just wasn't there. I mean, she's, she's not as blank as Richard Burton, which is, if damning with faint praise can be done, that does it. You know, you're not as blank as Richard Burton in right. Exorcist Two, but she's also not good. She's there's no continuity of emotion from one moment to the next. There's no sense that she has anything happening inside that is driving her to do all this stuff, and she has this baby doll voice right. that totally works against any seriousness now i don't know if william friedkin could have even gotten a good performance out of her at this stage in her career yeah i I think she was you know getting into drugs about this time and you know there were a lot of things going on but and and then of course we get to the end where we have uh you know sexy reagan which is so far beyond the pale of even you know even as a concept right that it's you know you're just lost by that point. I don't, and I, and the thing is, I don't know if even recasting her would have made that part work in the way it needed to, because she's playing against Burton and Louise Fletcher, who is just as blank. Yeah. And, and Fletcher literally never changes expression in the whole movie. <laughs> no, I know. Burton's eyebrows will go up and <laughs> his forehead will crease. So there's something happening there. Fletcher is <laughs> right. nothing. Yeah, it's weird. Um, just on the subject of of Linda Blair, I, yeah, recasting. I don't know. I just I think the character has no true emotional through line throughout the movie. You know that if the big payoff is uh, if the big payoff is I'm being possessed by a demon at a high school tap show. Like I just <laughs> it just doesn't. You can't, it's hard to follow. And and it's not all Blair's fault. I don't think. But she just kind of comes into a scene and it's not like she 
elevates it or even like, you know, de-elevates it. But you just like, okay, how am I supposed to feel about this? Culminating in, of course, like you said, sexy, evil Reagan. And you just don't really know how to feel. And then she dances in a locust storm and it's no big deal. Um, <laughs> like you mentioned, Louise Fletcher. Um, Ellen Burstyn uh, is not back in this film. She had no desire to be. And so they went out to find somebody um, to play an Ellen Burstyn's character, essentially, and settled on Louise Fletcher. But eventually um, they recast her as Dr. Jean Tuscan, a role that was written for a man, um, but is strong enough for a woman. And uh, <laughs> they decided to put her into that role, uh, no doubt uh, drawing on her history and past as uh, Nurse Ratched, of course, a w- right. role that she won the Oscar for. And they brought a Kitty Wynn back to play Regan's nanny, Sharon. Well, they had they had to bring at least somebody back. <laughs> somebody from the first <laughs> film. Originally, Detective Kinderman was going to be a main character. Okay, yeah. Uh, but Lee J. Cobb passed away, and right. apparently they, they didn't want to recast that character, which I don't entirely understand because, you know, as as you saw with George C. Scott, a, another actor can bring something to that character and make it really entertaining. Sure. And I think, you know, I think having that level, you know, you have the priest investigating, you have the psychiatrist investigating, and I think having that really grounded character of the police lieutenant would have helped the drama of it. I think it would have he would have been the vo- the the perspective character for the audience if if it was handled correctly. You know, his responses would be what our responses would be. Yeah, that at that point that's a lot of characters because we're following uh we're following Burton's character who himself comes into this with a lot of baggage like he was a well, I should mention, uh, just as far as the cast goes, Max von Sydow's back in this film. Yeah, he's the guy. He's the guy that comes out unscathed here. Yeah. Because, <laughs> first off, he doesn't have much to say. Right. And right. he's so good at what he does. I mean, in this movie, he's playing. You know, he was not an old man when he played in the first movie, and in this movie, he's playing younger than he was. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. in both of them, he has to have a lot of you know a lot of makeup, a lot of help doing it, but you're never conscious of it. I mean, I know, you know, people who see that first movie, they don't realize that's old man makeup. They think he's just an old man. He's been an old man in every role. I feel like I've ever seen him in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, he, in the, in the scenes where he's, um, driving Pazuzu out of Co- Kokumo, which is just wonderful to say, <laughs> you know, he kind of, he's got some dignity. He's got some some strength to him there. You you don't you don't feel as bad for him as you do for everybody else. But at the same time, he's it's basically a cameo. Yeah, more you or know? less. Yeah. He he's there for a few minutes and then he's gone because it's a flashback. Right. That's the way you got to do it to save money. Forget about making uh, Robert Downey Jr. look like he did in Less Than Zero uh, with CGI. You just cast a guy in the first movie, put old age of makeup on him, then pull it off, and now he's younger. Um, And he's somebody who I think has been uh, sort of slipping uh, negative criticism uh, throughout his career because he's been in some really great movies but he's also been in some he's a, you know he's a worker he just kind of yep. does work and so he's been in some real stinkers um he you know he, he got out of dune unscathed lee, you know christopher lee manages yeah. to, to get out of things i mean and if you can get out of castle of fu manchu with your <laughs> reputation intact you're pretty good for sure 
yeah, so Burton is just, you know, he's already in trouble. Uh, his character is, uh, I'm not sure if it's really, I'm not sure if I understood, but a, sort of a, um, a student or a sort of protege of uh, Max von Sydow's character. Protege of him, but but obviously not a good one because the first scene is him failing at an exorcism. <laughs> right, right. But the uh, in, in his defense, you know, the odds are stacked against him because we find out that this girl and, of course, um, uh, Reagan and other people are not just random possessions. You know, they are spiritual X-Men, if you will. They are the next level of evolution. And so there's a lot riding on this for both uh, heaven and hell. Um, John Borman actually was originally offered the first movie, the first Exorcist to make. But he ended up passing on it to make Zardoz. And thank God. Thank God that he did. <laughs> yeah, I think it worked out well for everybody involved. Yeah. And it's this film, I mean, he said this himself, but it definitely comes off this way. I think this film is an answer in a lot of ways to the first film. Um, whether it was a philosophical difference that he had with the film or maybe just sour grapes because he passed on a $400 million monster. But <laughs> this film really... One of the reasons that it doesn't work, I think, is that it really repudiates the the world and the worldview of the first film. And you, yeah, can, it, you can succeed in doing that. Like, look at the whole point of Terminator is you're fated to do whatever you, you know, you're going to do. And then Terminator 2, there's no fate but what you make it. And it's an amazing sequel. But that did not happen here. Yeah, I uh, – oh, what was I going to say? I think that – in in reversing this in in basically negating the spiritual worldview of the first movie he's also divorcing the concept from the catholic background and uh-huh. in this sort of story that's you know you do that at your peril because if you're going to have demons then you have to accept everything else angels god heaven hell right you know and exorcism as a way to to deal with these things when you take that away and you try to fill it with for lack of a better term a, a, a new age concept it's it's a it's a tricky thing and it would be very hard to pull off under ideal conditions right. but again that's what he wanted to do that that's his goal and it's like good god man who thinks of this yeah i that that does that would be a hard thing to pull off i've seen other properties do it um well like the uh just comes to mind um like the comic book hellblazer yeah. the character of constantine where there's definitely a um you know a, a roman catholic sort of bent to it but you've got other new age stuff and something like like the dresden files it has like uh, magic and like angels and demons and things like that but to me it's you know you mentioned new age i think the new age thing is kind of the fly in the ointment because and I don't know what – I mean, he's got a friend named Rospo Pallenberg. I don't know what uh, Borman's beliefs you know, or, or like a particular like religion was, but it just seems like that general kind of feel-goody late 70s uh, kind of aesthetic is, is what gets in the way. If they really laid out for us what this universe was and gave us some rules, we might have something to go by. But instead we're throwing – uh, you know, a South American like uh, Christianity in there. And then we've got, of course, you know, the regular like Western Christianity and you've got um, African spiritualism. Uh, you've got a hip, hip, uh, hypnosis machine. Um, yeah. It's just a whole bunch of different things. But that 
the, the irony of that is that whole concept comes out of the work of Pierre Chardin, a, a Catholic priest who was basically the model for Father Marin. And the real guy was, I, I don't know if he was ever actually brought up on heresy charges, but he tap danced around it. because <laughs> Don't say tap dance. <laughs> <laughs> He didn't jiggle as much, I'm sure. <laughs> but he, his idea was that there, that humanity was evolving toward a universal mind yeah. that would then integrate with God. And that's very much at the heart of this story. Yeah. So it does, in a way, come out of Catholicism, but certainly not traditional Catholicism. Yeah, and I think somebody had the idea about, oh... Um... Bible, uh, locusts, plagues, um, <laughs> Africa, and you just get this, boy, you know, this is a, definitely a, um, a hot button issue now for good reasons, but you get the depiction of a culture that I'm sure, again, don't know what color Rospo Pallenberg is, but I bet it's not, you know, darker than, than uh, eggshells. So he's writing about this African character and tribesmen and stuff like that, and it's just kind of comes off some of the africa sequences are really great like the whole um the whole thing on the cliff face you know when they're yeah. doing the exorcism there it's just so like strange um and so different than um what you think of when you think of like an exorcism scene but otherwise a lot of those scenes are kind of tone deaf you know it's a visual metaphor sort of of you know you have to climb higher than you were in order to fight <laughs> evil sure well you could do that with a bunk bed but yeah <laughs> uh speaking of the bed uh, linda blair refused to wear the makeup that she wore in the first film so all the possessed reagan scenes were played by a double and a lot of times films will take footage from their original or sequels will take footage from the original film in this they just completely reshot a lot of the exorcism yeah. scene or at least the part that we don't see when um, father Karras leaves leaves the room in the first film and he comes back and um um what's his name um marin is dead yeah uh this they just reshoot it and it's not done in a creative you know or interesting way it's just done from one angle uh, with an actress that is clearly not Linda Blair um, with a Max von Sydow that's just sort of like standing there. Like, oh, my heart. And it kind of goes on. And of course, that's all. This is all superimposed over Burton and uh, Louise Fletcher, you know, staring at each other. <laughs> so it's just. And then the Reagans are thumb wrestling. And they're thumb wrestling over the heart. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is not. Is this the man that made Zardoz? I don't think so. <laughs> No, I, I think it is the same guy. I think he's <laughs> he's pushing a visual storytelling that, you know, is trying to cover these kind of esoteric plot points. Yeah. He's doing he's doing it all in one frame. Yeah. You know, everything is happening <laughs> yes. right there. And that's, you know, I can respect that and I, <laughs> I kind of like that. It's I you know, again, so much of it falls because of the performances because you know, urgent Reagan thumb wrestling, evil demon Reagan is not a good conflict and it's not handled well or performed well. And, you know, and Louise Fletcher, who is, you know, I, it seems more like an asthma attack than a heart attack, but hey, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and it leaves no, no scars. You know, there's no repercussions from this. No. And you know, stuff like that, you know, I can see how it doesn't work. But again, if you're just, if you're just, Watching the visuals, if you're just seeing how the 
the story is presented to you, it's it, I find it very interesting. I do as well. I almost want to go back in time and throw John Borman in a cryogenic tube or something like that. Or actually, I guess if I'm time traveling, just bring him to uh, 2017 and hook him up with like a great CGI animator or like storyboard artist because he seems to have all these um, really out there ideas. And like you said, during this, he's running like three movies at a time on top of each other during that scene. So just hook him up with somebody who can like give him some great effects or just, you know, clearly in his mind he's seeing things that aren't going to be easily translated uh to to the screen but see what he can come up with with um you know with with modern uh effects technology nobody's gonna let him do that now (laughs) yeah i'm not sure what his last um last movie was i haven't heard anything about him in a while he may be retired i'm sure he probably is yeah i know he he worked with his oldest daughter on a lot of things and she passed away so that may have that may have prompted his retirement okay well that's sad um screenings of the film did not go very well uh it was so poorly received um on the at the opening night screening that people threw things at the screen apparently (laughs) which is always bad um william blatty uh as you can imagine was a little bit vengeful about the film and was one of the first to say that um the movie was really bad and the screening that he attended uh he said people were just openly laughing at the you know real serious parts yeah and and that's a perfectly valid reaction to some of this. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's wooden. There's no, the thing, one of the big things that worked in the first film was you felt for those characters. Yeah. And you, you know, you felt Ellen Burstyn's pain at what her daughter was going through. And, you know, father Karras's guilt was just, you know, literally just plastered all over his face. Yeah. You don't get that here. (laughs) No, and it's one of the reasons that the setup to the first movie is so long. Like, there's an hour where nothing really crazy happens, and it's because we're just spending time with the McNeils, and we're learning that, you know, heaven, hell, spiritual, X-Men, locusts, whatever. We're talking about, like, the life of this little girl that does not deserve this to happen to her. And so, yeah, you really get that emotional payoff where this is just... Some great ideas where it's zinging all over the world. But uh, speaking of going all over the world, uh, James Earl Jones is in this uh, at, at a time where this is, you know, Star Wars, same year. Um, yeah, like a month before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where he's not at a point where he could really say no to something like this. Or at least something like <laughs> this would he'd say like, oh, I think I could probably do that. Yeah, he's the, the adult version of the African boy that Father Marin exorcises in the flashbacks right and he um richard burton's character father lamont sees visions of him in a high priest locust get up with an enormous locust head piece <laughs> yes and, which uh, i just love the idea that that james Earl jones has this and you know, lounges around his house and <laughs> right. or, or wears this when he's recording darth vader's voice yeah right he, <laughs> he accepted but, his honorary Oscar wearing it. But I mean, this all goes back to what you mentioned before was the, this biblical idea of evil showing up as a plague of locusts, yeah. which again is, is a, is not a bad concept. The problem you get with it is when you break it down and you're supposed to accept Pazuzu, this awful demon manifesting 
as one grasshopper. Yeah. And, you know, and the, there's the whole thing about, you know, the brushing of the wings, which once Pazuzu's wings brush you, you're doomed. And that's <laughs> right. That's not, again, not a bad folkloric idea. It just, if you try to realize it literally, you are doomed. Yeah. Because a, a grasshopper is not scary. It's, it, <laughs> and no matter, you know, no matter how you focus on it, how you, what background you superimpose it against, a lone grasshopper is not scary. No. Now the, the the swarm of locusts, that's a valid image for, you know, evil for decay because nothing good comes from a swarm of locusts. Right. And, <laughs> and but again, you know, the way it's realized with with styrofoam, you know, packing eggs painted brown and blown out of a uh, out of a blower while the actors have actual locusts on their face and right. the difference is is obvious yeah <laughs> yeah you know. and the, the application of scientific principles or reason to these spiritual elements is a neat idea as well you've got father like father marin demon hunter like going across the world and like looking at this stuff in a sort of kolchak night stalker kind of way is that where's that movie i want to see that that's awesome well, the movie Dominion is kind of that. Sure. You know, it's 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 telling the same story, which is part of Blatty's original novel, but obviously it's telling it differently and it's expanded a great deal and it goes off on its own directions because Paul Schrader is, you know, was raised a Calvinist, which is yeah. a whole different thing. Yeah, <laughs> totally different. And having uh, Kokumo uh, grow up and become like a scientist – who is sort of applying his knowledge to the scientific efforts to sort of control something like this. Like that's a neat idea. Yeah. But we get tap but, dancing instead. But he's completely, he, he doesn't put any stock in the idea that the locusts are manifestations of evil. Right. He, he sees them, you know, just as bugs that need to be controlled or eradicated. And when you, you know, when you take it out, to that level, you're left with, well, why in the hell are we even talking to this guy? Right. There's no you reason know? to talk to him. Yeah. <laughs> he was seriously saying, you know, no one believes me, but I know that the, you know, the locust horde is full of evil. And you would have to say evil. Evil. Right. Right. Uh, then, then you would have a connection there, but otherwise he's, you know, just a, an entomologist with a deep voice. Yeah. It's, it's so strange. I mean, they they take this detour to I mean I can see going to Africa in the flashbacks but I'm not really sure why Burton's character has to go there. Um, I guess we wouldn't have uh, Ned Beatty in this film uh, if he didn't go to Africa. Who's in this film for I can't Mental Edwards yeah yeah I can't imagine why but he's in this movie um, and it's just sort of like and it also makes me wonder why when Burton finally contacts Pazuzu when he is um, synchronizing um, with Reagan why Pazuzu tells him the whole plan. Uh, why doesn't he just like give this guy a heart attack and just be done with it? Like he takes him on this magic grasshopper mystery tour <laughs> where he kind of tells him the whole thing. And I, and I can't figure out why he would even bother to do that except because he's just a proud demon. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, and you could make the case that he wants to show off for this representative of the other side. Okay, sure. You know, to, to show how, but again, it's it's in the execution where it, where it lacks. The fact that we even notice that it's incongruous, incongruous says that it's not done terribly well. Yeah, yeah. What did you think about the um, like the Uri Geller reference in the film? There's a oh, yeah, the spoon bending thing. Yeah, yeah. 
I didn't see the point to that. I mean, <laughs> and, and and Yuri Geller is one of those things. He, in the seventies, he everybody knew who he was. He yeah. was on all the talk shows, and James Randi hadn't gotten around to thoroughly debunking him right. as as he as we all know now. Right. So I guess it was just a way of maybe implying that that Geller was another one of these avatars of enlightenment. Oh, really? <laughs> that was out there. And, you know, it's like, you know, the, it's not just Reagan. It's not just Kokomo. There's Uri. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see that prequel. Yeah. <laughs> it's a whole drawer full of spoons this time. <laughs> um, the, uh, you uh, mentioned the music before, uh, which I have to admit is pretty good. Although this movie, wow, the opening is is nuts. I mean, it's just words on a black screen, but it's playing uh, Morricone's arrangement, Little Afro-Flemish Mass. And it's not the kind of thing that you expect to hear from a sequel to a incredibly successful movie. Like you are suddenly assaulted by this wild uh, ululations. Yeah, it's 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 almost like you're hearing an exorcism of some kind. Yeah, and, exactly. And because it's not in in English or in any sort of European form that we're used to, it re- it is jarring and it's really compelling, I think. I think, you know, and there's a point where Burton gets roused enough to to bring something to a speech about you know, the evil that's in Reagan where he calls it um, perverted and perverting, which is a great is a great image and a great line. Sure. But there's a there's a musical sting with that that creates an atmosphere that if the whole movie had had, we wouldn't be talking about it this way. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. It's a strong choice. And I think a strong choice, good or bad, is always better than than a weak choice. It reminds me of um, the Zither soundtrack from The Third Man, which is like The Third Man is a perfect movie. And then you lay all this Zither music over it. But it it wouldn't be what it is uh, without that. Yeah. Um, And everybody remembers that. You know, they may not be able to remember the tune, but they remember (laughs) the sound. Yeah. Uh, Borman spent uh, over a million dollars of Warner Brothers' money to basically reshoot and re-edit the final reel. He actually pulled the movie from some theaters to recut it after its release. And he added in the um, the locust uh, taming dance uh, at the end of the film uh, from Reagan, which I was amazed to find was – I mean it's cheesy, but I was amazed to learn that it was an addition because to me that seems like the thematic yeah. mirroring of the bull dance that Kakuma was doing at the – I mean why wasn't that already in there? Yeah, that's – and that's that's the way I feel about it because yeah. it does. It, it it brings everything full circle and it makes perfect sense, which you can't say about a lot of stuff in this movie. And you know, why didn't somebody notice this before? Yeah, I don't know. And, and what did they have in place of it? Just you know, the demon falling through the floor and Reagan walking out of the out of the rubble. Yeah, I think they shot like five or six versions of the ending where um, they both die and where um, Burton's character dies and she walks out of the rubble and and this is the one that they eventually you know landed on. This is I think the director's cut is pretty much the only cut that you can get these days. Yeah, I've, I've never I haven't seen another cut in any form. I, I used to I used to have the VHS and it was the same as the DVD. Okay, okay, yeah. Um, this movie was voted the second worst movie of all time at the Golden Turkey Awards. Uh, it lost the number one spot to Plan 9 from Outer Space. So that's that's rarefied air for a film. That is. that is, And both of them are sincere expressions of somebody's 
you know, deep artistic beliefs. Right. They're, they're not, you know, they're not hack jobs. They're not Sharknados. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, they're definitely uh, on a napkin. There's this napkin is full <laughs> of scrawled ideas. Um, well, speaking of uh, people reviewing the film and their opinions of it, uh, let's talk pick of the patch. I found some contemporary reviews uh, of this film. Not many. It's hard to find films that are both bad and old. Um, <laughs> opinions of them from the time uh, tend to uh, fall away, and we get a lot of um, you know modern blogger reviews. Seventy-seven. Uh, right. Wasn't um, a bad movie year. Of course, you had you know Star Wars, Annie Hall, um, a lot of good films, but it's definitely coming down from the heights of the early seventies. Um, and reviewers, what do they know? They didn't like Sorcerer, so they've they <laughs> can't be trusted. But uh, I checked the uh, Variety archive. Um, Variety archives almost all of its old reviews and articles online, and I found a review that says basically, um, well, I'll just quote it word for word. Uh, since any title containing Roman numerals invites comparison, the answer is no. Exorcist II is not as good as The Exorcist. It isn't even close. Gone now is the simple clash between good and evil, replaced by some goofy transcendental spiritualism. So that reviewer was not feeling the <laughs> sort of New Age elements <laughs> that I think we've agreed uh, did have potential in the film. Yeah, and, and in the 70s it was a cynical time. You're right. You liked crystals or you didn't. Yeah. To be fair, a lot of the, the, the New Age stuff that penetrated the, the total consciousness of, of you know, the culture was all based out of California. And Lord knows nobody else trusted anything out of California. Yeah. Um, I did find a lot of mentions in the New York Times archives, um, but no actual review. And most of huh. the uh, mentions were, were negative. They were – it'd be an article – talking to Richard Burton in 1978 and he'd be like, Oh boy, I don't even remember shooting that movie. Um, that sort of thing. Um, I, I'll say that, uh, Pauline Kael, longtime critic for the New Yorker liked the movie. Um, but she famously hated the original film. So yeah. I think that she had a lot to prove in There's saying that, that, rever that reverse barometer thing. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She definitely, I mean, she's you know, clearly a skilled critic, but it was just one of those things where she and that movie did not get along. She did not, uh, like what was going on in that film. And so she was of the same mind, I think, as Borman in wanting to basically disprove, like, it's almost like a, like a academic paper that's trying to disprove, you know, the worldview of the first film. I should warn you that, uh, no major sites, as far as I could see, uh, the websites that is, uh, have reviewed this film. Uh, the best I could get was a Flavor Wire review, which is relatively modern. Uh, Jason Bailey of Flavor Wire says, It's 118 minutes of endless flashy light hypnotism, staggeringly terrible locust effects, and Richard Burton wandering around what appears to be Tatooine. You say that like it's a bad thing. Right. That sounds like a great movie to me. <laughs> uh, film Freak Central, Bill Chambers of Film Freak Central said, Possibly the worst film ever made and surely the worst sequel ever made. Zero out of four stars. I do agree with the second part um, as far as the drop in quality and also just being a, a counterpoint, you know, trying to attack the first film's ideas, I think. It's probably yeah. the worst sequel ever made. Oh, I don't know about that. Oh, yeah? <laughs> what would be your nomination for worst sequel? Oh, man. I, now, now, of course, you're asking me that, and I'm trying to think what what would be. I think Airplane 2 is up there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, staying Alive. Oh, there you go. I would watch Exorcist 2 on an endless loop rather than sit through Staying Alive again. <laughs> 
Oh, boy. Uh, that's that's my next podcast. Wow. Uh, <laughs> and on the plus side, uh, Fernando Croce of Cine Passion did say that this film was, quote, a glittering repost to the original's earthbound viciousness. Yeah, that's and I think that was that was the goal. That was what they were trying to get across and were just sort of defeated on every front. Yeah, I think he was picking up what Borman was putting down there. Well, as we come to the end of the show here, could we get a final recommendation for you? Would you would say definitely see this or definitely don't see it? I would say definitely see it. I think it's it's like a lot of those things when you hear that it's so extremely bad or so extremely good for that matter, you have to see it for yourself and make up your own mind. Yeah. And you know, and there is no right response. If you think it sucks, then it sucks to you. Sure. But if you know, if you can look past the stuff that sucks <laughs> there's some good stuff in there i think yeah the biggest crime is boring and it's not boring you could give it that no it's it's not that and it, and it's odd because the the, per, the performances are so dull you would think the movie <laughs> would be boring but it's not no no it's not so uh, I think we are agreed. Um, you've you've won me over. Uh, I say, uh, people, C E two T H. You won't. Yes, <laughs> you won't be disappointed if you don't expect much. So that's it. Thanks for joining us on the show. If you want to let us know how you felt, listeners, about this movie, you can tell us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash craft disservices. Also, we're on Twitter at craft disservice. We're also on Apple Podcasts. You can look for craft disservices there and subscribe, rate, and review us if you would. It helps us out a lot. And you can also find us on Google Play and Stitcher, all that good stuff. Alex, where can people find you online? Uh, they can find me at alexbledsoe.com, and I'm on Twitter as Alex Bledsoe, and on Facebook as author Alex Bledsoe. Author Alex Bledsoe. Got it. Anything you're working on right now you can tell us about? Uh, my new novel, The Fairies of Sadieville, will be out in April. In April, and available everywhere? Everywhere. Awesome. So check that out, pre-order that, and thanks for joining me, Alex. Oh, thanks for having me, man. This has been a blast. Yes, it has. And the credits are rolling. This is Aaron for Alex saying keep it real. Mm-hmm.